Welcome to The Wrap, a weekly podcast covering women's sports news. My name is Chloe Dalton. I'm an Olympic gold medalist in Rugby Sevens and also play AFLW for the GWS Giants. Every week on the show, I'm joined by my co-host, Bez, Chief Researcher and Queen of Merchandise at the Female Athlete Project. Bez, we are in matching hoodies today. We're actually doing this virtually because I'm a little bit, I've been a little bit sick over the weekend. Yours looks like it's been through the wash a few more times than mine has. And I think it might have. <laughs> Although, yeah, it definitely has. Let's take a look around the ground, shall we? Netball finals and financials. Gilmore wins her 33rd CT surfing title and Rhiannon Ifland jumps off the Eiffel Tower. Kind, kind of. There isn't water below it, I don't believe. There is definitely a fountain of some sort underneath it, a water feature. Let's go with that. For our key story, we'll discuss the commercial viability of the expanding NRLW competition. This podcast drops every Tuesday morning at 6am. Hit the subscribe button to make sure you don't miss out. And you can also subscribe to the email newsletter of The Wrap that our team behind the scenes works very hard to bring together. Put the link in the show notes so you can sign up for that one to read it with your morning coffee on a Tuesday. But first, let's take a look around the grounds. In netball, it's been a massive few weeks for netball on and unfortunately off the court. On Saturday night, the West Coast Fever absolutely dominated the minor premier Melbourne Vixens to be the first team through to the grand final. The win turned Netball Australia's controversial decision to sell the grand final to Western Australia into a masterstroke, given the Fever would have earned the right for free under the old system after their win. I wonder if they would have been better just to keep it a secret and then be like, wow, look, and then suddenly we get all this money. I said exactly the same thing. I bet they wish they held off that announcement for a couple of weeks. Uh, I don't think that would have gone down well after the miscommunication backfired, though. No, hindsight. And after the re- revelations that Netball Australia last week about their current financial position, a little bit more on that later, the game needs all the money they can get right now. But on the court is where these athletes deserve the attention and West Coast Fever's Janelle Fowler produced a playoff record shooting performance to help the Fever, who were substantial underdogs, having lost twice the Vixens this season, to a 71-62 domination. Fowler finished with 67 goals, bettering at Romelda Aitken's 63 in the 2016 GF and finishing just three goals shy of her own super netball general record of 70 goals in a match. That's just so that's a amazing. huge amount of goals. Like that's a lot of the time where the scoreline sits. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it was an uncharacteristically error-strewn performance by the Vixens who were playing in front of a packed John Kane arena and they were unable to match the intensity and aggression that the Fever brought to every contest. Vixens captain Liz Watson, I love this, I watched this live, had some choice words post-match when she said, to put out a performance like that, you don't deserve to go through to a grand final, to be honest. But we've got another week, which is the positive, and we just need to bring it from the start because we were just missing right from the first whistle today. Can we discuss that? Because I love the honesty in that. I think I think there's definitely power in coming back to the positives and that kind of thing. But I think a lot of the time those post-match interviews, you just get the typical like credit to the girls kind of phrases. I actually really love that Liz came out and was like, we, do, we don't deserve to go to the grand final with that performance. Yeah, absolutely. The- The honesty is just priceless. I love it. The Vixens will now face the Giants in the prelim final on Saturday. The Giants. Go the Giants. (laughs) It's the internet delay. Pavlov's dog here. Uh, The Giants (laughs) get 
<laughs> Just ringing the bell. The Giants kept alive their chance of returning to the Super Netball Grand Final after impressive second half fight back. They were down by three goals at halftime and were led by captain and shooter Joe Harton, who finished with 44 points at 90% shooting in the 55-48 to 48 win. The Giants haven't beaten the Vixens this season, but Harton is confident the belief shown on Sunday will help them overcome the Melbourne team and earn their spot in the grand final. Joe Harton, I love the experience of a player like that. She's just cool, calm, collected under pressure. Um, and also the young gun, Sophie Dwyer, with the nailing a super shot late in that fourth quarter. Good to watch. Joe Harton was immense, wasn't she? And just I love the way watching the game, she really demanded an intensity lift from her team halfway through that, that match. Was basically reaming them out on court. Loved it. In swimming, the World Championships are currently being held in Budapest and the Aussies are hauling in the medals already. On the opening night of racing, the team of sprint freestylers, Molly O'Callaghan, Maddie Wilson, Meg Harris and Shana Jack maintained Australia's recent dominance in the 4x100m freestyle relay, winning the race with the fifth fastest time in history, 3 minutes 30.95 seconds. It was a sweet victory for Shana Jack, who has spent two years on the sidelines after her doping ban. Jack anchored the young team, who were without senior members Kate and Bronte Campbell and Emma McKeon, and she did an outstanding job at bringing the team home. Our favourite coach, Dean Boxall, trusted Jack to swim the leg of her life, and Shana didn't let them down. After the race, she said, Dean said before the race, the decision to put me as anchor was for that moment that I could touch the wall and look up at these girls and just feel proud to be part of the Australian team again. For me, I've lost my swimming career before, so coming here, I had nothing to lose. I'm here to race. I'm here to have fun. I'm here to embrace the experience with everyone on the Australian team and other teams as well. Everyone's been very supportive, not just the Aussies. I've definitely been welcomed back with open arms, and that's been such an amazing, uplifting feeling. Winning with these girls just makes it even better. It's a great way to start the week for ourselves and the Australian team. I love that from Dean Boxall. What a refreshing way to look at it and say, say, you know what, you need to be part of this team again. I'm going to let you win the gold for them. So good. He's he's good like that, isn't he? Mm. Like he's he seems like an intense bloke, but the fact that he recognised the importance of Shana being able to touch the wall and do that, it's it's pretty powerful. On night two of the meet, Kaylee McEwen grabbed Australia's second individual medal of the World Swimming Championships, a 200-metre individual medley silver. It was an interesting choice of event for McEwen, who ruled herself out of the morning's preliminaries of the 100-metre backstroke, the event she dominated in Tokyo, and the distance at which she holds the world record. The semifinals on the backstroke were taking place less than 20 minutes before the medley final later in the afternoon. And McEwen chose to throw all her eggs into the IM basket in an attempt to prove herself a global champion all-rounder. Despite coming up short of the gold, McEwen was happy with her decision, saying after the race, I wasn't really expecting to come up and podium tonight. It was more just getting the international experience. Sadly, I pulled out of this event at the Olympics to focus on the backstroke, and this is the perfect refresher for the next three years, just taking the pressure off, and it was really good mentally for me. Also in swimming, the World Parrot Swimming Championships wrapped up on the weekend in Madeira, Portugal. The Australian team finished the event with seven gold, 15 silver and nine bronze medals. Plus, they broke one world record, five championship records and eight Oceania records. The event made history for the Aussies as the first of any Australian swim team where every eligible athlete will bring home medal to Aussie soil. How good is that? 
Yeah, so, so, so impressive. So good. Australian swimming is in a very strong place at the moment. Paige Leonhardt finished the event on Saturday in Star when she claimed gold on the final day of competition in the women's 100-metre butterfly S14 in a time of 105.27, which is an Oceania record. In surfing, Punta Roca El Salvador proved to be a happy hunting ground for Steph Gilmore on Friday. The Aussie seven-time world champ won her 33rd career title to build on her own record for the most women's wins in the history of the Surfing World Tour. She defeated American Lakey Peterson in the final after eliminating Caroline Marks in the semis and fellow Aussie Isabella Nichols in the quarters. The victory moved Gilmore into third on the rankings and filled Gilmore with confidence heading to Brazil in two weeks for third last stop of the season. She left it pretty late after choosing to be focused on wave quality when selecting her rides. In the 40-minute final, Gilmore had just 1.03 points to her name with 11 minutes remaining. In comparison, Peterson had compiled a two-wave total of 9.67 by that stage. But Steph pulled out the goods when she needed it, following up a 7.33 ride with a 5.67 to snatch the lead with just minutes remaining. It was Steph's first tour win of the year, and she'll be keen to keep her spot inside the top five. So this will be the second year that we see the top five men and women, after the 10 events of the World Tour, compete in a one-day finals competition at Lower Trestles in California in September to determine the world champ. Gilmore currently sits equal with Lane Beachley on seven world titles for the most ever in women's surfing and said after the final, I would love to win another world title, but it's a long road. There's a lot more competition to be surfed and a lot of hard work to do, but this is just an amazing experience and I'm so happy to be here. Lakey is an amazing surfer, so I knew it was going to be a tough final, but it doesn't get any better. I love doing this. I love winning. I love doing this sport. We love watching you do the sport, Steph. So good. Yeah, we do. In volleyball, the beach volleyball world champs wrapped up on the weekend and Aussie Olympic silver medalists Maria Faye Artacho del Sola and Taliqua Clancy couldn't get past the German team of Svenja Muller and Sinja Tillman in a tight quarterfinal contest. They took the first set 23 to 21 but couldn't secure the all-important second set, which the Germans won 21 to 18. The final deciding set was super close and unfortunately for the Aussies, they just couldn't get the win, losing the deciding set 16 to 14. Maria Fay was not totally disappointed after the loss, taking to social media to say mixed emotions after falling short in the quarterfinals. Nonetheless, we took great steps in the right direction and excited for what's to come. Sometimes you win, sometimes you learn. You love that one, Bez. I do. Look at you just shaking your head in appreciation. I do love that. We win or we learn. In diving, there was some insane footage coming out of Paris on the weekend. Why was it insane? Well, they were jumping from a platform 21 metres in the air into the Seine River, and it was insane. Insane. Honestly, though, it was insane. So the Red Bull Cliff Diving World Series Round 2 was held in Paris with the divers jumping off a built platform with the Eiffel Tower in the background Beautiful. in to the River Seine. Absolutely stunning. Two weeks ago, the season opener was held in Boston, and Aussie cliff diving goat. Oh, we're not doing goat again, are we? Okay, a cliff diving goat? It just makes so much sense. Oh, my gosh, because of a, a mountain, mountain goat. goat. I was going to call it a cliff goat. That's not the one. <laughs> a mountain goat. Okay. At Darcy V, if you could do a mountain goat jumping into the water, that would be great. Thanks. Please. In some budgie smugglers, thank you very much. Amazing. 
Uh, so cliff diving goat Rhiannon Ifland, who is the five times cliff diving World Series champion, suffered a rare defeat to newcomer Molly Carlson. The Canadian put a stop to the incredible run of 13 World Series wins in a row when she defeated Ifland in Boston. But like a true champion, Ifland used the defeat to reassess her approach and order was restored in Paris when the 30-year-old surged past her younger rival to make it 14 wins in her last 15 World Series comps. The location, as we said, was incredible and so was Ifland's diving. She acknowledged after the event that the competition from Carlson made her rethink her approach. I didn't want to have the same dives at the same time with Molly, said Ifland. It's more difficult doing the most difficult dive in the end because it's harder to control the nerves. I think I'll play around a bit more with the dives this year and see how it goes. I'm certainly excited for a great battle. The series now moves to Copenhagen in Denmark on the 16th of July. And in super exciting news for Sydney Siders, Red Bull has confirmed that the eighth and final event of the season will take place on the 15th of October in Sydney. I can't wait. Cool. It will be the first ever visit to Australia where two champions will be crowned at Fleet Steps in the Royal Botanic Gardens in Sydney Harbour. There will be a purpose-built 27-metre platform erected to allow the divers to compete in front of the backdrop of the Sydney Opera House and the Harbour Ridge. I does cannot that trump wait. the Eiffel Tower? I think it does. Well, it does, in my opinion, my humble Sydney cider opinion. It absolutely. <laughs> I've grown up here my whole life. It buries the Eiffel counts. Tower. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool, though. How beautiful! Yeah. It's gonna be great. In rugby league, it was an exciting week in the rugby league world last week. NRL chief executive Andrew Abdo on Wednesday unveiled fast-tracked plans for the Cowboys, Raiders, Sharks and West Tigers to field sides in next year's NRLW competition. It was originally planned for the league to go to eight teams in 2023 and then 10 in 2024, but the NRL has opted to take a more aggressive approach with an expansion of the women's game. ARLC chairman Peter Volandi said, we have a blueprint for investing in the women's game at all levels. We've seen the quality of the 2021 NRLW premiership and the tremendous growth in female participation that we have capacity for sustainable growth. The commission have again demonstrated that the women's game is a strategic priority. The quality of club submissions was excellent. I just, that quote in general, I absolutely love the fact that it's not just focusing on the elite game because we're actually seeing a growth at grassroots level because of the success of this, um, of the elite game. The decision means the NRLW will have more than doubled in size since its inaugural season in 2018. And Abdo forecast further expansion beyond a 10 team competition in 2024 on the back of growing playing numbers and optimism about the NRLW's value to broadcasters, Fox Sports and Channel 9. He flagged potential for an expanded NRLW competition to be sold as a separate entity in the next broadcast rights cycle and believes the women's game will stand on its own feet financially by 2028. Um, Some more expansion news on the game last week was a little bit less exciting. Um, This year's Women's State of Origin match is going to be held this Friday, which is pretty exciting, but it's going to be the last of the one-off matches with the announcement of an expanded series from next season. Congrats to the winners of our giveaway that we did with Gatorade to win tickets to that match. So what's happened with this State of Origin one? They've expanded to a two-game series, which just makes absolutely no sense. And a lot of people are asking the question, a two-game series means if you each win one game, the series is tied. Um, so it just if that's the case, then it just stays with the winner from the previous year. I don't know why you'd go to two and not just go to three. It's, it's not, quite bizarre. It is quite bizarre. I think that needs to be a case of it's not a progressive 
like increase. It's just, you've got to make the jump from one to three going from one to two actually makes no sense at all. Um, New South Wales captain Kezi apps also question it questioned whether it's the right way to decide such an important series. She said, I would have preferred to jump straight to three. It can be one and one. And then how do you decide? It's just bizarre having two games and it doesn't really make sense to me, but hopefully it only lasts for one year. And maybe the year after we can push that to three origins, just like the men. It kind of makes this Friday's game doubles as game one of next year's series because mm. if you win this Friday, then you're kind of already one ahead. Yeah, it's a bit strange, isn't it? Mm. Very odd. Um, anyway, as Kezi said, hopefully it only lasts for one year and they get to three in 2024. In tennis, she's back, Serena Williams. Wimbledon announced last Wednesday that the winner of 23 Grand Slam singles trophies will be the recipient of a wildcard entry for singles, marking her return to Grand Slam action after a year away from top-level competition. Williams has not competed anywhere since sustaining an injury during the first set of her first-round match at Wimbledon in 2021. The 40-year-old has won seven of her singles trophies at Wimbledon, the first in 2002 and most recently in 2016. The longevity in her game is just impressive. So impressive. And it's not as if she plays the game easy. Like she plays tennis like it's a contact sport. It will be a welcome return for the organisers as they look to avoid the negative attention surrounding the decision by the ATP and WTA tours to remove ranking points from Wimbledon after the All England Club banned Russian and Belarusian players in response to the invasion of Ukraine. In less exciting news, Naomi Osaka confirms she will not be taking her place in the draw at Wimbledon as she battles her way back from a lingering problem with her left Achilles tendon. Osaka said last month that she was leaning towards not playing in London due to her injury and also the points situation. She said, I feel like if I play Wimbledon without points, it's more like an exhibition. I know this isn't true, right? But my brain just feels that way. Whenever I think something is an exhibition, I just can't go at it 100%. It'll be an interesting Wimbledon, won't it? Do you think that she has, like, used that as the reason? Do you think that if points were involved, she would be playing? We can't determine that. We don't know the extent of her Achilles tendon injury. But what are your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Another Canadian tennis player, Emily Bouchard, came out and said, she flat out said, if there were points involved, I'd be playing. But given there aren't, my injury is not quite ready, so I'm not Mm. playing. These athletes are not short of coin, so it's... Yeah, they don't, they don't need the motivation of winning money. No, I don't think they're necessarily playing for cash. Yeah, I, I, if, you, if you were 50-50 as an athlete and if you playing Wimbledon was then therefore going to rule you out of tournaments later on in the year, then you'd have to probably consider not playing because there's no points involved. We've seen people like Andy Murray come out and say that the prestige of the tournament should be enough. Do you think it's right that this is going to get hold, held against Naomi, this decision? That's an interesting one. Naomi obviously is quite polarising in the media space. She doesn't give much. And that social media post that she released to kind of sharing the news about her withdrawal really touched more on her, again, her kind of mental state than rather than her Achilles, didn't it? Mm. it was, what do you think about that? Yeah, and I think at the end of the day, Regardless of what people think about the way that she fronts in the media and and the messaging she puts out, I think she's done a huge amount in the mental health space for athletes. I think it's made a lot of people, um, fans, journalists, fellow athletes kind of stop and take notice. So you kind of just have to, I guess, meet her where she's at with that stuff and whether it's Achilles, whether it's for points at the end of the day, similar to the Ash Barty retirement situation, Naomi has the right to 
decide whether she plays, whether she's right to play or whether she's not right to play. Absolutely. And won't there be some nervous female tennises when the draw gets released and they cop S. Williams in round one? <laughs> As a wild card. Un- unranked S. Williams. <laughs> uh, amazing. That, that person may all of a sudden also be injured. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my Achilles. <laughs> In paddling, the paddle goat was at it again on the weekend, this time in Poland. Jess Fox showed she is a class above the rest of the K1 field, finishing 2.58 seconds ahead of Czech Teresa Fizarova to repeat her win of seven days earlier in Prague. Unfortunately, the C1 gold eluded Fox again. She finished fifth after missing gate 21 on her way down the course. She then turned her attention to cheer on her incredible sister, Noemi Fox, who again made the final of the extreme kayak, Bez's new favourite sport, Um, and she was incredible. She took home the silver medal in this event um, and then took to Instagram afterwards to show Jess Fox in a TFAP t-shirt eating some Maccas in a car park. It was was excellent content, really. She's my favourite athlete, and that includes you. Are you joking? Let's take a look at the key story. It's a, an interesting one. So this this kind of covers two topics here. There was a recent article written by journalist Paul Kent. Uh, he highlighted the current financial woes of Netball Australia and used them as a warning to the NRL against investing too heavily in the female game. He said that Netball Australia dreamt too big too quickly. In case we don't use that visual piece, I just want you all to know that there was a massive eye roll when I read that. Firstly. Let's address last week's netball story. A report from News Corp claimed the sport is in $4 million of debt, which had to be, has to be paid off by the end of this year. The rumours started to swirl that NA was on the verge of bankruptcy and the governing body was forced to issue a statement on Friday afternoon. The statement in part said, we understand the financial position we are in and we've been transparent about it. We are not on the brink of financial ruin. Importantly, we know what is needed to protect the future of Netball Australia we must continue to explore financial and commercial opportunities to ensure our organisation is positioned for growth. Netball Australia CEO Kelly Ryan admitted the sport took a $7.2 million hit over the past two years, leaving the organisation in $4 million of current debt. Ryan said the pandemic was prim- primarily responsible for the losses over the past two years, and I think we can all acknowledge that they aren't the only sport to have done it tough during the global pandemic. One of my favourite things from Chief Researcher Bez, is when you come up with the facts to actually debate these statements. So can you share on the rugby league and the AFL losses, please, and thank you? So season 2020 in the Australian Rugby League Commission, which is the ARLC, which is their kind of governing body, they recorded a full-year deficit of $24.7 million and the AFL in 2020 posted a $22.8 million loss. So the loss experienced by Netball Australia over those two years is not out of the ordinary for an organisation that was also forced into a hub model to continue and played games in empty stadiums, you know, away from home. I mean, those hub models cost sports a lot of money. They were housing players, families, feeding them, doing all that stuff. It was not a cheap exercise. So for commentators like Kent to claim that Netball Australia rushed into the professional era and paid players on ambition rather than reality is either purposely insulting the athletes at worst and just ignorant at best. Yeah, I think there's a real lack of insight and research into the the whole picture here. He seems to kind of just pick out one topic he wants to take a crack at, uh, predominantly women's sport a lot of the time. 
Um, he raised some concerns around the cost to the NRL of the women's game, including an alleged 60% rise in teams' wages and running costs. Some of the industry sources have indicated that running an NRLW program, including feeder sides and pathway programs, costs a club about a million dollars a year. The NRL grants to clubs are expected to cover around half of that, and multiple club CEOs are optimistic that revenue from sponsors, corporate, and government partnerships would offset the remaining costs and see their women's operations break even. NRL CEO Andrew Abdo expects the NRLW competition to be sold as a separate entity in the next broadcast rights cycle, as we discussed earlier on, and believes the women's game can stand on its own feet financially by 2028, which would be pretty impressive for a competition that began in 2018 as a less than part-time competition. And you hope that information like this and backing from people like Andrew Abdo and his position will kind of satisfy these so-called pundits and experts who complain that the female game is underwritten by the men's game. Um, again, some more stats to kind of back it up. The NRLW season played earlier this year saw an epic increase in average TV audience of 53%. The combined average from Channel 9 and Fox Sports of just over 200,000 viewers rivals that of NRL and AFL matches that are played in early time slots on Saturdays and Sundays. That was another point that the journalist made in his article. He spoke about the number of teams and finding time for them to play. Um, and they do, you know, with the double headers, they do often end up playing around lunchtime on a Saturday or a Sunday. And, you know, again, that affects their viewership. It, it, that's a perfect example that their combined audience actually is very similar to AFL and NRL matches that are played in those same time slots. Bez, on the back of that article, you had some interesting conversations in the comments section <laughs> with some people, but a lot of the time these people who probably don't have a great understanding of the role that investment plays and the historical limitations that have been placed on women in sport often say, oh, but the men back in the 70s, they had to work full-time jobs and they weren't professional athletes. Women just have to be patient. Yeah, the, the patience argument is really infuriating. I think people get obviously carried away with, with the word equality and it is obviously super important. No one's expecting Kezi Yaps to be paid the same amount of money straight away, you know, as Tedesco is being paid. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about equal opportunity more than anything. We're talking about equal access to facilities. And really, when it comes to NRLW, we're talking about making these athletes full-time athletes so they can actually work on their skills, on their knowledge on all of those things that make them better rugby league players because at the moment they're all working eight-hour days like the guys did in the 80s and turning up to training and trying to perform every week after that. So, you know, and when, when, they bring, when people bring up that whole argument about male footballers in the 80s versus now, have, when was the last time you watched a, a game from the 1980s? It was a different game of rugby league back then, I'll tell you that much. Let's take a look at what to watch. The Matildas are in Europe, like everyone. Everyone's in Europe. I'm going time. soon. I want to go to Positano. Uh, the Matildas are in Europe and the relatively inexperienced group will be out to prove themselves in their friendly against Spain. It will be an early alarm for Matildas fans with the match kicking off on Sunday morning at 5.30am Australian Eastern Time. You getting up for that one, Chloe? I reckon. 5.30 on a Sunday. I'm not great in the morning, but I do love the Matildas. <laughs> 
Zero chance. Zero out of a million chance of you being up at 5.30 on a Sunday. I love women's sport. <laughs> this is the beauty of technology. You can just, I, you know, you can watch that later. Yeah, I'll just stay off social media and watch a replay. <laughs> In rugby league, it is women's state of origin time and the 2022 one-off match will be played this Friday, the 24th of June at Canberra's GIO Stadium. The game kicks off at 7.45pm and you can watch live on the Nine Network, KO and Fox Sports. In netball, do not miss the prelim final in the Suncorp Super Netball. The Melbourne Vixens will host the Giants. Go the Giants. At John Kane Arena on Sunday. The action starts at 7pm and you can watch live on KO Freebies and Foxtel. So that one's free on KO. The World Swimming Champs continue this week with all the action coming live from Budapest on 9 Gem and 9 Now. And a big shout out. we got a little recommendation here from... Father Bradley, he's been watching. Not a priest, my dad, Brad. (laughs) (laughs) Not a priest. (laughs) Yeah, big shout out for a series on SBS On Demand at the moment called Sports Woman. The two seasons take an in-depth look at the best female athletes around the world and provide fans with an excellent insight into their respective journeys. And that's the wrap. See you next week, friend. Hopefully you're feeling better. I hope so. We're back in real life persons. Yeah, great. Looking forward to it. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Ciao.